Welcome to the show, everybody. It's the end of the empire with me and him. How you doing, hey, Pete? What's going on, man? How are you? Thesis and antithesis here. Uh, yeah, we got to synthesize some things. Um, it's uh, the end of the empire, the Libertarian Institute's show, the end of the empire. You find us in the right-hand margin at libertarianinstitute.org. And um, that's the big news to start off, and I guess we'll probably come back to it as well. Uh, it's fundraising time at the Libertarian Institute. And we got a tight little crew, but we put out a bunch of great stuff, man. And uh, I'm pretty proud of the Institute, as it is. My regret is that Will Gregg is not here. Yeah. Uh, it started out, it was me and Sheldon Richmond and Will Gregg, and then uh, building it from there, and then, oh, Will died. That wasn't supposed to happen. Um, but other than that, though, um, the Institute seems to be a cool little thing. You know, my goal was to make it as credible as the FFF, you know, for starters, at least. Obviously, Cato has a giant glass castle in Washington, D.C., and the Mises Institute has their giant mansion in Alabama and all this. So we're not quite, you know, the independent institute. I don't know what their building looks like, but they got a nice place in Oakland. Um, we're the new guys. We're just starting out. But it ain't nothing, and it ain't just a website. It's, it's a great group of guys that we got, great group of podcasters and a great group of writers. And then uh, we publish all these great books and including we got announcements along those lines, by the way, tonight, um, as far as um, Institute books and other projects we're working on. So it's a cool ass thing. And um, so it is funny, isn't it, Pete, that ideological capitalists uh, like ourselves seem to always work for nonprofits instead yeah. of charging prices <laughs> give our material away and then ask for donations like a bunch of bombs huh uh well i mean it, it works better that way i mean who's the biggest donator to you know cato who's the biggest donator to americans for progress i don't think i think we'd have a lot of problems if um we were taking their money don't you think yeah absolutely um you know, it raises the question, doesn't it? Like, what if the Cokes said, oh, Libertarian Institute sounds good to us, and then just wrote us the giant check? Would, would all my guys resign if we took Coke money? Would that make us part of the Coketopus? I don't think you'd take it. Would our, would our integrity be compromised? I don't think you'd take it. I don't think no. you'd want to take it. I'd think about it. <laughs> oh yeah you definitely be stupid not to but you know it's um it, it's one of those things that once you get associated with that name yeah it's kind of hard to kind of hard to come back from that that's so. true right it's it's the appearance of impropriety right even if i never talked to a coke family member who ever told me they want us to focus on this or that and instead of this or that even if that never happened it would kind of seem that way to people <laughs> you know what i mean one hundred percent, one hundred percent, and it would and <laughs> rightly, rightly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true, right? This is a, hey, Michael Bolden in the chat. Yeah. Michael Bolden's in the chat. I like Michael Bolden. That's an opinion of mine. Hmm. Could you? Um, is Michael Bolden going to be? Wait a minute. Is Michael Bolden going to be in Orlando this weekend? I don't know. Uh huh wondering this one guy i've never met 
in the flesh. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, he's a great guy. Oh, you'll, definitely. You'll have a great time meeting him. Yeah. yeah, Tom Woods event this weekend. That should be fun for you guys. Um, listen, uh, I'm not really prepared for tonight's show. Uh, it seems like I could probably like pull up antiwar.com and find some things to complain about. I could tell you a cool story that I um, interviewed James Bradley earlier, the guy that wrote Flags of Our Fathers. Oh, really? Tell yeah. us about that. Well, he's a Asia expert, and his most recent book is about all of the propaganda campaign about China in the 30s and 40s. So, like, you know, in the run-up to World War II, and then, you know, I guess especially on the post-war era, and who lost China, and Chiang Kai-shek was Ashraf Ghani, and his army was the Afghan National Army, this Potemkin village the Americans had built, and all of this stuff, and just... He just talked about all the hype about China over and over again and uh, the China lobby and the who lost China argument, the 20 years of treason and all that uh, and the rise of Joe McCarthy. And was, you know, it wasn't really about the Soviet Union. It was all the commies who gave China to Mao and all of that was the, the narrative at the time. And then he was just talking about what a threat they're not right now. And his daughter lives in Taipei and they're not afraid of China invading anytime soon whatsoever. And their idea is that if the Chinese government did come and take over Taiwan, that then what? They'd have like a different color ID card or something. And then otherwise their life would not change whatsoever. And he says, he talks about, he goes to, to Hong Kong and he talks to people there and he says, well, the Americans say that you guys are all like desperately rebelling under the evil Chinese commie dictatorship that's coming and taking over everything. And they're like, we are? We never, you know, like on TV, they make such a big deal about the umbrella revolution and whatever, you know, protest movement. But like, this is some infinitesimal segment of Hong Kong society, right? It was like all of this stuff is going on essentially in the American imagination without them. And just anyway, given a realistic take on China and and why their neighbors aren't actually afraid of them, like the Koreans or the Japanese or, you know, and all like that. So I don't know. I'm really way behind. I really need to read a bunch of books about China and try and catch up a little bit. But uh, I think I set him up enough to have his peace. You know, I was saying to him, you know, like steel man argument or something. This new guy, gee, he's way worse than the other guys. And, and, and what if he did reunite China with force? And how bad that would be? He was like, meh, what do you care who the leader of China is? What difference does it make? I'm like, yeah, but okay. But for argument's sake, let's say he's worse than the last guy. He's like, yeah, exactly. He's worse than the last guy. Still, so what difference does it make to you? Nothing. Why would you even know that? <laughs> you, you know what? You know you wouldn't. You wouldn't even know anyway. And if he, if you know, the threat of China invading Taiwan is greatly enhanced by American threats over it, and America, you know, increasing all the tension and making all of their promises. And, and all of their threats and all of that. It's all just backfiring anyway. And it's all, as everybody knows, it's all just an excuse to make money. He quotes Jack Keane, the horrible, evil Jack Keane, who helped lie us into both uh, surges in Iraq and Afghanistan. For that matter, probably lied us into war with Iraq too in the first place, I forget. But really close to Petraeus, horrible warmonger on Fox. And somebody asked him on Fox, okay, China, they're doing this and this and that. What do we do, Jack Keane? And he goes, well, We've got to retool. 
<laughs> and so James Bradley's just like, uh, yeah, okay, thanks, dude. Got your number. Seen this movie. Understand what's going on here. This is simply a racket. You can boil it down to just that because there's nothing else to it. You know, what would America do if there was no Soviet Union and the Chinese abandoned communism? Osama bin Laden only ever had 400 friends and we just don't. And the Germans and the Japanese are not intending to recreate their new world order from the 1930s and 40s. But what do we do? Who do we fight? We got no Martians. We got no lost continent of Atlantis. Who are we going to attack? Brazil, India? Who's next? We got to have an enemy. And it's just so obvious. It's a war machine looking for an enemy. I don't know. What if we went back to China again? Okay. Yeah, let's try that. But, you know, as my friend Adam says, it's the flea wagging the dog. Well, he was talking about Israel and the United States. But it's the same thing. The military industrial complex in the United States of America. It's the flea wagging the dog. You know, why in the world do they get to decide what our policy is? Oh, I was joking. There's this big scam uh, scandal going on right now about the French were going to sell some diesel subs to the Australians. And then the Australians made a deal with the Brits and the Americans that, no, we're going to sell you some nuclear subs instead. And not nuclear armed subs, but just nuclear powered subs, meaning quieter and further range and this kind of thing. Well, so the article that I was reading about this said, well, you know, the project to finish arming and training the Australians on these subs, which we've never given the Australians all this time, that level of, of Cold War tech, we never gave them. So the project to do this, to give them the stuff and to train them on it, to build up all the ports and whatever necessary and all the things to do it. The plan is to have this all operational by 2050. <laughs> and I'm going, wait a minute. I mean, I already know this and everything, but it's just hilarious to me that they don't even have a cover story, right? Like they don't even have, they don't cover the base. I'm like, well, wait, but isn't y'all's policy that you're going to have to figure out a way to peacefully get along with China by the year 2050? We won't have figured out a way that this earth is big enough for their civilization and ours in the next 30 years. We're going to be building up a submarine force for them because we think we're going to need it then. It's going to deter the Chinese from invading Australia then. Is that it? I mean, it's, the whole thing is completely crazy. The whole thing is completely corrupt. You know, I'm always reminded of this. Did I mention this to you before, Pete? The first really anti-war person I ever knew was a skater friend of mine's older sister. And she was like the absolute, like straight out of like the douche commercial or whatever. She's like the happy, long, pretty, uh, pretty long-haired hippie girl in a sundress. Right? And she's going, give peace a chance. Don't you know Ronald Reagan is spending all this money on these B-2 bombers and it's such a waste of money. We could use that money to help people. Wah. And I remember thinking like, who cares? <laughs> like that's the dumbest thing. In fact, the last thing I knew about her was she joined the army and was like a big soldier ready to go ship off to Iraq. Um, but at the time, that seemed like such a silly whiny thing for a like regular human to complain about, right? Like that's People in D.C. at think tanks or wherever, they come up with how many planes we need. Like, I don't know. Who, who would argue about that? What a waste that is. 
But the thing is, that naive, silly, hippie girl in a sundress was just completely right on. You know, that actually all those guys in those think tanks, you can't trust them at all. They're all on the take. Every single one of them has a conflict of interest. They're not bribed directly by arms manufacturers like Lockheed and Northrop Grumman. They're bankrolled by the Saudis and the Qataris and the United Arab Emirates. And, you know, the, the countries, the Germans, like at the Atlantic Council, right? These people have a, a massive vested interest in keeping the American taxpayer on the hook for all of their costs, you know? Uh, just the same as the people on Wall Street or, you know, in Fort Worth or in Washington State, the Lockheed and Boeing guys or whatever. Um, and the whole thing is a complete racket. And it turns out we don't need any of these bombers at all. We don't need any of them. You know, I quoted it. I'm glad I had a chance to quote Ron Paul in my uh, debate with Bill Crystal. He said, we could defend this country with a couple of good submarines. You know, what we can't do is pull a Star Destroyer into orbit you know, right offshore of your country and threaten to blast you off the face of the earth if you don't comply with our demands. We can't do that with a couple of good submarines. Maybe we could. If we're really ready to threaten H-bomb first strikes, I guess we could. But, uh, you know, essentially that would send the signal of just defensive purposes. And then, like, what if Earth went on spinning without any one dominant power on Earth at all? Not the Germans, not the British, not the Americans, not the Chinese, not the Russians, not the Indians, not anybody. Right? Like, what if there was no group, no one power or regional group of powers strong enough to dominate anybody else? And we all just had to figure it out. And that's the whole thing, man. If you go back and look at the neocon strategy from the end of the Cold War, Charles Krauthammer said, this is our unipolar moment. He didn't say we'll rule the world forever and ever and ever and ever. He said, this is our chance to set things up the way we want it because, hey, these smaller countries or, you know, now less wealthy countries are going to get more wealthy. They're going to rise in power and influence. And so we want to set up the world order the way we want it for the day when that happens. Right now, they act like for any other power on Earth to have any other power at all is their attempt to dominate all of mankind. But that's just, you know, Freudian projection. You know, that's just the Americans claiming their enemies are doing what it is that they're doing. But think about how stupid, like Xi might be ruthless, but you think he's dumb enough to say that, great, now the Americans are out of the way, I'm gonna act just like George W. Bush, and I'm gonna go blow my whole wad invasing, invading Kazakhstan or some crazy thing, even for that matter, attacking Taiwan. Like, how much more do they have to lose than gain from doing something rash and violent and expensive like that? You know? Yeah. So, you know, most, anyway. most yeah. of what I hear about China when people are expressing concern is that, you know, the economy, China, so much of our goods and something that's come out recently is like, Oh, China really getting into bed with Afghanistan and everything like that. And I'm like, well, I thought they were invading Afghanistan. Now they're yeah. getting into bed with Afghanistan. I mean, right. I, where are they getting this stuff? It's from? this title nine thing, right? Where like anything counts as rape. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I said, where do they, where do they get this from? I, I just, who, who are the biggest right now pro or, or the ones who are putting out the most propaganda about China? And it well, just, I mean, the Falun Gong runs the Epoch Times. Right, and, right. You know, 
so I mean, they're an insane UFO cult and stuff. They got a good a good reporter there who's interviewed me and does some really good writing about the Middle East. I should add, um, but uh, so hey, conflict of interest or full warning or disclosure or whatever. Uh, Ken Silva's his name's done done good stuff, but essentially that's you know they are there to propagandize against China. And of course, the Washington Times and UPI, you know, have always been really hawkish on China. And I'm not sure if the Moonies control the Washington Times anymore. For a long time, they did. And they were always associated with the China lobby, you know, the, the pro-Chinese, right? Um, um, of course, the Wall Street Journal have always been big China hawks. And... And, you know, I don't know, I guess Steve Bannon is, you know, in the new media, Breitbart. Um, I don't know. I mean, he's not associated with them anymore, I don't guess. But I think he was a big part of setting that up and getting them, you know, on a anti-China path uh, to start. They make for a pretty good enemy, you know, in terms of imagination. I mean, you got to hand it to them. At least their caliphate exists, right? They're talking about the Islamo-fascist caliphate, but there's nothing but nation states in the way. The whole thing was imaginary. Right. Well, there is China. You know, it's a big chunk of Eurasia and they do have an army and things like that. So congratulations to them. They're right. They're not entirely fictitious. Um, you know, so you can try to make something out of it if you want. But it just doesn't make sense that they would try to adopt an aggressive foreign policy at all. And really, look, the Americans call the Chinese policy A2AD, anti-access area denial meaning totally defensive in nature right they're building up the ability to keep us out that's it and in fact you know i was talking with james bradley about this where he's saying imagine if the chinese were like tooling up in nova scotia and you know we're patrolling all up and down uh the caribbean and in the gulf of mexico and coming up with excuses to be you know all over in latin america We'd be completely flipping out, but they don't do that. You know, they trade with Peru or whatever. They don't have a military presence in our hemisphere. They wouldn't dare. You imagine if they were patrolling all up and down the West Coast of Mexico, building military bases in Mexico, threatening Catalina Island and saying that, oh, no, this is all defensive to keep America from attacking Mexico. When Who says we're attacking Mexico? We're not going to attack Mexico anyway. And they imagine the panic attack. Imagine... I mean, you and I both know we'd be at DEFCON 1. You know, they wouldn't, they, the American people and the American government wouldn't put up with that for a minute. They would go absolutely bananas. And, you know, and in fact, they'll, they'll freak out over lies, right? Like you could tell them anything and they'll believe it. Um, but if that was really happening, it'd be absolutely unacceptable from the point of view of the American government and the American people. But then we think that the Chinese are supposed to just lay there and take it. And that this is perfectly fine for for us to have this, you know, essentially offensive, um, you know, regional alliance, ring their uh, their nation with as many military bases and and associations and alliances as we possibly can, called the Indo Pacific now, because now we got to bring in the Indian Ocean and the Indians to join our group to try to hem in. And by the way, you know, Dave DeCamp has done a really great job of writing about this at antiwar.com. They try to create a new Asian NATO and they wanted to bring in Australia, Vietnam, I think India, and I forget who. And everybody said no. I guess Japan. Nobody wanted to do it. 
Because, dude, you know, Vietnam said, we're going to join a military alliance against China. Actually, you fight China. Like, no, we don't. We've had our problems with China in the past. We're not trying to make new ones. In other words, Pete, the Vietnamese don't feel like the Chinese are coming. They don't feel like they need an alliance with us to keep China out. They're more worried that an alliance with us would provoke China to come. Right? This is the same kind of dynamic in Europe right now. You know, the Americans, not just Donald Trump, the Americans constantly kick Germany for not spending enough on their military. Well, what does that tell you? That the Germans aren't panicking and building up tank divisions. It says that they're not worried about the Russians coming right now. And that possibly they're more worried that if they start building up, even under the pretension that they believe the Russians are coming, that that's what will alarm the Russians more than anything else. The Germans are militarizing. We need to do something. And But meanwhile, and I know, in fact, Bill Crystal would say, yeah, but that's because we're there. But I just don't think that's true. In fact, if you look, America's interfering and obstructing and trying to prevent Germany and Russia from building a natural gas pipeline together, something I wish I had mentioned during that debate. We're, we're there. You know, that is... Again, you know, not the democratic peace theory, but the capitalist peace theory. You get these guys interdependent with each other financially so they don't fight. And it just seems to me, not that politicians don't make bad decisions, but all the incentives are for the globalization of business, the globalization of economics. And then so it's on us to resist the globalization of government along with that. It's unnecessary. Um, you know, counterproductive, but, you know, the nations, the people in the nations, the companies in the nations, they want to trade. It's the Americans always putting the sanctions on, always preventing that kind of thing. So, man, how frustrating, right? Like if you're at Rand Corporation or you're at the Atlantic Council or the Washington Institute for Near East Policy or AEI or something, and your entire job is, you know, pronouncing that there's a crisis and, and prescribing that we got to militarize to do something about it. Like, what if that's just not true? What are you supposed to do when there are just no enemies in the world? You know, when the Japanese have no pretension of regional domination any more than the Chinese do. Uh, when the Germans and the Russians have no intention on dominating each other or their neighbors in between them either. You know, it's like, do you remember, Pete? Like at the, right after the end of the Cold War, Lockheed, got a contract to try to distribute federal welfare benefits because at, at one point they were saying, look, now that the Cold War's over and we, we're demilitarizing, we got to find other stuff to do. Lockheed's a big company. We got a lot of really smart engineers and mathematicians and stuff. What if we got other kinds of government contracts doing things like food stamps or, you know, whatever it was. Because JP Morgan got that was, one. <laughs> do what? JP Morgan got that one. Oh, JP Morgan got that one. Yeah, that makes sense. Boy, did they get a cut. Imagine how much money they made off of that. But, I mean, they were, it was literally Lockheed was talking about trying to get into that, right? Like, in other words, if if you could just take all this militarism away from them, we're like, sorry, pal, it's it's illegal for Lockheed to lobby anymore, whatever it is, it's over. They'll find something productive to do, or they'll go into bankruptcy. Fine, you know? But it just, I guess, I'm sorry, I'm... I, I'm rambling like this because I'm trying to wrap up the point. I can't figure out the smart way to say <laughs> that it just doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to have this world empire at all. We don't have to have this kind of militarism 
and this kind of, you know, enemy seeking whatsoever. We could be living in a totally different world where that's just not our priorities. Why, America, we're just a humble little old commercial republic, Pete. Everybody knows that. That could be the world we live in right now. There's no reason it's not. No good one. You want to talk about something domestic? Yeah, let's fight about libertarianism and sectarianism for me. Okay. To? Yeah, let's but let's let's use this as a jumping off point. Okay. Because this has been something that a lot of arguments have um have been brought up about. Um and it's your home state. Um Greg Abbott passing the um basically saying that he's going to nullify Biden's executive order and um saying that Vac vaccinations cannot be made a condition of employment, um, even companies with more than 100 employees, um, even I, I think he actually um, has said gone as far as to say even military contractors and things like and companies like that. And this is something that DeSantis has already done. You know, DeSantis has made vaccine passports in Florida illegal that you know, even even private companies can't use um, can't use them, can't demand them, things like that. And how does it work? I mean, where do you stand on that? I mean, when you look at your home state and you got wheels there and wheels is saying that you can't, um, you know, a, a private company can't. Um, Michael Bolden is saying he's not nullifying, just posturing for a lawsuit, his opinion. He should though, um, but well, know, so if he comes, okay. if he does that, you know, I mean, you probably know a few business owners, you know, who have brick and mortar there. So yeah, well, listen, I mean, okay, so there's a few different things there. The first thing is I haven't read enough about it to really like give you any like just the summary you just gave me about what his orders have done. Like that's more than I knew, right? So like, um, there must be parts of that that you know, I don't know if he'll get away with, but I think all morally that we could all stand behind, such as, you know, the federal mandate on companies with more than 100 employees that they have to do this. If it's possible for him to nullify that and say, you know, to, to countermand that order or somehow declare that he's going to protect Texas businesses that refuse to go along with that or whatever exactly how that works, I think that sounds all great and fine. Um, if he's saying no Texas company can require that their employees are vaccinated, well, that's just completely crazy. And it's the same thing as saying that they have to require a mandate. You know, you have companies where, well, they're in the healthcare business, right? Or they take care of people who all are like at-risk people, right? People who are already sick and poor and overweight and have diabetes and and got to really, you know, they got to make sure that their employees aren't spreading or, or do everything that they can to make sure their employees are not spreading um, disease to people that they're taking care of, whatever it is. And you can make up your own uh, circumstances for it. Um, people dealing with children or whatever, say you own a daycare and you want your, you want to be able to tell your customers, your, the children's parents, that all your staff are vaccinated. And that kind of thing to me was that's just between the employer and the employee. I don't see how the, the federal or the state government or any government has the right to get in between that at all. Um, but and it's, you know, it's the very same principle at stake. Right. Is that 
you know, who gets to tell who what to do? And the answer is the people who are signing the contract as per their agreement. And that's it. That's the end of the argument, right? Unless it's, you know, hiring a hitman or something, that's different. But to, you know, to hurt somebody else, to violate somebody else's rights. But um, otherwise, I don't see where Abbott has, you know, a position there. And I saw where um, Dave Smith said, listen, if you think that passing a law banning vaccine passports, which I think that's different, right? Employees, this is the same thing as like customers to be able to go in to open businesses and stuff. But anyway, Dave's saying, look, if you think that um, that banning this kind of thing is just as bad as mandating this kind of thing, well, you're totally wrong. And the emergency in our time is that they're mandating this kind of thing. And I agree with that, right? Like, I, I wouldn't say it's exactly equivalent, you know, in terms of like, which matters more right now. But, it, you know, the principle is still the same and the principle matters. And and for the same reason, ultimately, right? You know, um, I'm sure you saw Bob Murphy said, look, it's a slippery slope argument. It's the same as anything. You could have the government mandate anything that you're for, but then that means you're conceding the point that the other guys can use the same thing against you for something else. So um, I think Buck, Buck Johnson's in the chat and he's saying, you know, we don't live in a property rights society. We live in a you know, principle, we live in a civil rights society. And, you know, I was talking with Kinsella about this because obviously he's a lawyer. And I've been talking with Stacy about this because she's a lawyer. And, you know, I was basically making the argument. I made the argument to Kinsella that um, when you're looking at, like the unvaccinated could basically become a suspect class at this point, just like minorities and everything like that. And they could, this could turn into a civil rights issue. So, well, certainly if it's a government, if any, I mean, look at what's going on in New York, this government mandate. Now that's a passport. That's not, you know, a business one at a time, business owners or managers making decisions about how they want to do business. This is the government saying that you can't work there anywhere and that you can't be a customer anywhere. Unless you can't go in for a cup of coffee without showing your ID and your passport to go to do anything in New York city right now. And which immediately, just as I predicted, and this is why I was, I guess, too optimistic about the vaccine passport thing. If you go back four or five months ago, as I said, well, this is immediately going to be discriminatory against the poor and the black and other minorities. You know, these, these kind of limousine liberal types like to project, you know, their fantasies on other people about how they think everything is. They like to pretend anybody who's, who's reluctant to get a vaccine is some right-wing redneck Republican, but that's not true. Black people in America have a history of severe distrust of government medicine and for obvious reasons, you know? So um, that's been, a, and also, you know what? They also, um, you know, disproportionately work jobs where they have to deal with the general public. So that means they'd probably, I don't know exactly the statistics in New York, but there's every reason for me to believe at least that they have disproportionately already been exposed to COVID and so don't need a vaccine because they've been infected and have natural immunity in probably greater numbers than the rest of New York anyway. But here they're being completely excluded. And I'm amazed that it lasted already. Like there was one, uh, one or two Black Lives Matter protests against the lockdown, against the passport thing. 
And then that sort of went away, I, I guess, so far. But I don't think that can last. And I don't think they're going to try that outside of New York and maybe San Francisco and a couple other of the absolute craziest places. But they ain't going to try that in Austin, Texas. And in Austin, you know, the, the leadership here wishes that they could be as horrible as in New York or San Francisco. But they're in Texas and there's just there's just no way to enforce that kind of thing around here. It just wouldn't be enforced. In fact, oh. even during at the very beginning of the lockdowns, Austin was rocking and rolling. People were out everywhere doing whatever they wanted all over the place and disregarded that, you know, almost entirely from the very get go. So, um, you know, yeah, Michael Bolden. Michael Bolden's uh, comments, he says, OSHA has about 2,000 inspectors, 774 federal, the rest state. It would take them 160 years to inspect all businesses under their jurisdiction at one time. You know, one thing I will say, though, is that theater that you debated at. Yeah. Oh, they were excited. They seem to be excited about checking passport, you know, checking vaccine cards. I mean, they seem to be very excited to be going along with this well and i mean the guy i dealt with was just a doorman i mean it was just his job he didn't know yeah. and and it did suck i mean the whole thing was just bananas yeah. um, so but i just and look, i mean i, I mean your I'm reaction thinking, was i'm thinking there's a lot of new show a week ago you go look I, why would i even go back to new york i'm not going back to new york you know sure. for the horton crystal thing fine but that's it and I think a lot of people are going to react that same way, right? I'm not going back there until that's over. For That's for sure, dude. This is the, the one exception that I would go there, you know? And uh, it's they're committing suicide. And the island is the, the, the most wealthy island in the world is blowing its brains out. Why? You know, over this obsession, over Democratic Party politics more than anything. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just want to say, like, I think it rings as absurd to everyone as it does to you. That's why it's New York City's the only one doing this, aren't they? Right? Tell me what I missed. There's nobody else in the country that's doing a New York City style passport right now, are they? Um, not that I uh, is Michael Bolden. If you're in there, is LA doing it? Um, and I'm assuming San Francisco might be doing something like that. I'm not really sure. I mean, definitely New York is the one that everyone knows about. Um, but I mean, I just think that. I think there are a lot of people in New York at this point uh, that would probably think that if the governor said, you know, businesses can't do this, can't, you know, require people, re require vaccine passports or even require, you know, I'm getting something that really pissed me off today is I'm in a group chat with some people. And one guy said, hey, I got a buddy. He works locally, you know, high, high level job. He's losing his job because of the jab. Does anybody else have a job? Um, does anybody does anybody know anybody who's hiring right now? And the thing that pissed me off the most about it was that it was so nonchalant. It was just asked as a matter of fact. I have yeah. people hitting I have people hitting me up in my like DMs and going, well, I'm, you know, out of a job you know i have people i have supporters patreon otherwise who are either canceling their or lowering it because they're losing their jobs and i don't blame them i've told i told people when this started i went on patreon when this started and i said any of you that have to drop out drop out now right. you know 
because I mean, this is, I mean, I said 18 months ago, I said that I said, but, um, I mean, I think that, I don't know. I, I think that it is the, if the government was really following the constitution and they were protecting people's rights, the right to buy food probably seems like it should be a natural right. I mean, imagine somebody who lives free in association at all. The right yeah. of people peacefully to assemble is right there protected in rule number one. You you can't form a riotous mob. The cops will assume the authority to disperse your riotous mob. Other than that, they don't have the right to disperse you, you know? And I don't know, like people claim public health exceptions. You know, when I when this all first started, I asked Tom Woods, so did Rothbard ever write the gold standard on what libertarians think about upper respiratory viruses? You know, and Tom says, no, there's, you know, I don't know. Somebody should have called Robert Higgs on the hotline where find out exactly what the rules are. But what um, I thought was interesting about this was it ain't it, Ebola. You got to admit, but you know what? It's it is like more than half a million people dead of the thing, too. So it ain't just a spicy flu or, you know, depending on what you mean by spicy, but it's pretty goddamn spicy. Right. I mean, the thing knocked you on you your ass, didn't it? If you believe those numbers. Well, yeah, I don't I don't think they're that far off. I think I think they may be overestimated in some ways, but I think they're undercounted in some ways, too, because a lot of people are just dying at home. They're not getting tested for covid once they're dead. But, they, you know, rather than die alone at the hospital, they just stay home and suffocate. So. But the. Um, you know, what I thought was funny was when I was when DeSantis was doing all that stuff in Florida, I was like, hell, yeah, just go ahead. And one of the reasons I was cheering it on is I wanted to see how people would react to it. Yeah. Yeah. I want to see how the public reacts to that. I want to see how the right reacts to it, how the left reacts to it, how the middle reacts to it. And I was getting into it with Kinsella because, you know, Kinsella is like, you know, this isn't liberal. It's not a libertarian position to take. I'm like, yeah, I don't care. I don't care. That doesn't mean anything to me right now. I'm that, that I'm looking at this. I'm looking at this differently. I'm almost looking at this as like a, um, it's like studying humanity, like an anthropologist or something like that. And then when Abbott like came out with this the other day, Kinsella's Kinsella posts and he tags me and he's like, no, I'm starting to understand exactly what you were, you know, what you're, yeah, because Kinsella's there in, in Texas, what you got, you know, he lives yeah. in Houston and everything. And he's like, I'm starting to understand what you were, you know, what you're looking at and everything here. And um, I, I think it's interesting. I think this goes beyond if you really study this, it goes beyond passports and jabs. I mean, that's the most important thing. I mean, nobody should be forced to into a medical procedure. But watching the way people are reacting to this, I mean, you can we already see that there's a jab team and there's a there's a pro jab team and an anti jab team. Now watching how people are reacting to government saying state government saying no national government can't do this i mean then you now you have a study in federalism that's been going on that's really been going on for 18 months so yeah. i mean i actually think that this is major study yeah. of partisanship too yeah you know, yeah this, the i mean in power were switched this would be an entirely different conversation right now yeah. well i mean and i always like to point out to the right that um trump was mr operation warp speed and even to this day he says yeah, get 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 the vaccine. Get the jab. It's it's good. It's good for you. Everything. So, yeah. and right wingers would agree with that if he was still the president. 
Oh no, he gets booed. Dude, he gets booed when he well, says that's that. different. That's different. He's not still the president. And now it's right. Biden's vaccine, and he's urging people to get Biden's vaccine. And so there's cognitive dissonance there. They won't go for it. But well, if it was his vaccine all along, yeah, then they'd be going. It says in the Bible, boy, that you do whatever the president says if he's a Republican. Romans yeah. 13. But it's true, but it's true. I mean, what Tony Tony here is saying, the jab. I mean, people in Israel people in in england are dying i mean j- people who have the jab are dying of the uh, of dying of covid well it's, it's in like, way lower proportions than the people who are not vaccinated dying of it that's not what the whale study that's not what the whale study uh what came out of wales a couple of weeks ago and i i wrote about it is i mean it was like it, it seems like the around most here protected- all the people in the, in in the austin hospitals the people who are dying of COVID were the non-vaccinated people. There's still people with breakthrough infections going there, but they weren't on vents and leaving in body bags. And look, I know this isn't a double blind study, but I know that that little weirdo, Anthony Samaroff, gave you and me the exact same dose and the same strain of Delta variant COVID at the same damn time there at Porkfest. And I was fine. <laughs> I was vaccinated. And I had a little bit of an itch behind my nose and I have an excuse. I'm not a communist. I probably wouldn't have gotten the shot to be perfectly honest with you, except for my wife has lupus. So there was no argument about whether I'm getting the shot or not, because I can't have her getting sick of this thing. And it's somewhat less transmissible uh, if you're vaccinated, even if you have a breakthrough infection, if you're vaccinated. And so in my case, I got a little bit of an itch behind my nose and I did not pass the germ to my wife. And I don't know if you passed it to anybody, but I know you told me that it knocked you on your fucking ass way worse than it got me. So seems like on the margin, it's helpful. And it also but depends not, but, on the brand, not right? Anymore. Now, it's the, now it's the booster. I mean, yeah. in Israel now, you're not considered fully vaccinated unless you have the third shot. Yeah, but wasn't that like the Pfizer shot or the Johnson and Johnson thing? I'm not one of those brands. No, they, they didn't do Johnson and Johnson. They too. didn't do Johnson and Johnson in Israel. No, maybe it was Pfizer. Maybe it was Pfizer in in uh, Israel. I forgot if that was one of the mRNA ones or not. But I figure I'm I'm boosted now, man. I got two shots and an infection, um, so I ought to be good. But you know, um, my uh, in laws' friend just died. Somehow I forgot the first part of the story. He won the lottery, or some kind of thing. That's not right. I can't remember what it was. He came into a bunch of money. Sixty five years old, which yeah, sixty five is not you know thirty or whatever. But still in perfect health, 65 years old, goes to my, he's, he's totally happy, come on, comes into all this money somehow. Can't remember the first part of the story. Buys a condo in Miami, drives home to Cleveland to get his stuff, gets the germ in Miami. By the time he gets to Cleveland, he drives straight to the hospital, straight to the ICU and dies. And the guy, and he didn't get the vaccine because he was in absolute perfect health and had, you know, a you know, his medical records was one page long. Nothing wrong with him whatsoever. He didn't want to get the vaccine. Now he's a dead man. He almost certainly will live if he'd gotten the shot before that. I honestly don't like seriously. Again, I mean, look how goddamn skinny I am and I'm a skateboarder. I'm in good health. I get plenty of sunshine and exercise and I've always had a very good immune system. I'm willing to take the risk on the germ to tell you the truth, Pete. I really don't give a damn. If, if I wasn't married to Larissa, I probably wouldn't have gotten the shot. You know, that's my bias like against that kind of thing. But I don't understand the obsession with it. I don't understand why everybody's so terrified of the damn thing. 
you know, like, again, you shoot Joe Biden into the sun before you let him, you know, pass some mandate forcing people out of their jobs, you know, through OSHA and all of this stuff. I'm not talking about mandates. Obviously, I don't think there should be a government at all. How can it mandate anything to anybody? But I'm just saying, I don't understand why people are so terrified of the damn shot. I mean, I get it. It's a crony corrupt thing and they got Congress protected their liability and stuff like that. But billions of people have gotten the shots. Very low numbers of them have died of the shots. Some people have died of the shots. But compared to hundreds of thousands of people dropping dead, suffocating in the hospital of their cytokine storm from this COVID, again, it's because it's all so political, right? Like you'd have to be some kind of liberal Democrat to think that a germ is dangerous or a inoculation might help you when really those things shouldn't really be political at all. Right. Um, certainly the germ isn't political, <clears throat> but, um, you know, yeah. And look, and this guy's point is my point too. It's all, it's personal responsibility. Get if you want, don't get if you don't want. I mean, I'm certainly not like about beating everybody in over the head and telling everybody they should get it. And I certainly am opposed to any kind of mandate. Um, I mean, think about that, trying to force somebody to get a shot in their arm. You know what I mean? Of anything is just, <clears throat> people got a weird concept of where their authority ends. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or where it begins and ends if they think that they have the right to do that. But, um, you know, anyway, see like right here, I'm blue pilled on this. I'm blue pilled in what way? That the that it's a novel respiratory virus that is causing people to suffocate to death. I got friends who are dead of the goddamn thing. Right? Um, and uh and and honestly, I have not kept up with all this shit because I hate the subject. It's so stupid, it's so politicized, it's such a wedge issue. People people don't want to hear about it. People get upset if you don't agree with them about it. So I haven't kept up with all the details. But I know that people are not people who are double vaccinated are not dying at the same rate. They're not getting infected at the same rate and they're not dying at the same rate of people who are not vaccinated. You know, maybe you found an exception in Wales or whatever. I'm not sure. I'm not certain of that study. But, you know, I know people who work at hospitals here in central Texas who the people in there dying are not vaccinated. And then they die going, I don't even have COVID. You're you're in on it with them, you stupid nurse. You're the one giving me COVID and all this shit. I got, you know, I know of nurses quitting because the dying patients are like screaming at them and accusing them of getting them sick. So they're just like, you know what? Fuck this. This is the dumbest job. Can you imagine being a nurse and all your patients are mad at you for trying to help them? That's not really their job. I sit there and put up with it. I saw on Facebook that I don't have COVID. You're giving me COVID. I, whatever garbage they people believe, you know, people believe anything as long as it's not true, you know. Um, well, I mean, but, I think uh, it's. You, yeah. Do you do you not think it's interesting that healthcare workers are walking off the job because they don't want to take this? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, the um, PhDs. The PhDs are like. The, the largest group of people who are like refusing to to get it. Well, now you're just talking me into it, Pete. I mean, PhD, <laughs> PhDs are completely full of shit. 
PhDs think we have to stop Saddam Hussein from giving nuclear bombs to Osama bin Laden. Most, P- but most PhDs are leftists, but most yeah. PhDs are on the left. Yeah, well, okay. So even more to the point, right? Like they're so they're stupid idiots. But this time, see, this is all confirmation bias, right? Um, and PhDs in what? PhDs in philosophy or PhDs in molecular biology? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I bet the PhDs in molecular biology are taking the shot. Now, as far as, you know, nurses um, uh, quitting over it and that kind of thing, I don't know. Probably, I would presume most of them have already been infected and feel like they don't want to get a vaccine for a germ that they already have immunity to because now they're taking a risk that's an unnecessary risk. Where now the balance has shifted. Now they're taking more of a risk from getting a vaccine that could have side effects when they're already inoculated because they've already gotten the germ, you know, and I don't know what's the percentage there, but I bet you that's a big percentage of that. You know, that's a problem. People who just, they don't want to take any shot whatsoever. And they would rather take the risk of getting the germ, which is fine too, whether they're a nurse or something else. But if you're saying that, do I interpret that to mean that like super majorities of nurses don't want the shot? And that the reason they don't want it is because they're seeing people come into their emergency room fucked up because of the shot all the time and stuff like that. No, I don't infer that, you know, like that's a lot of presumptions in there that I'm not seeing, you know, and I have seen nurses say that, hey, I don't think people should be giving shots to their perfectly healthy teenage sons. I have seen them saying that, you know, but uh, I haven't seen them saying that, boy, I got more people dying from the shot than I do of the germ. I rather, you know, whatever. I haven't seen that at all. You know, I don't know. Um, well, I mean, I just think it's interesting that I just think it's interesting that it, a lot of it is in New York where the death count was insane, especially really early on. Yeah, you had the whole nursing home scandal and everything like that. And yeah. that's where, like, and it's in, like, the blue states. It's in, like, New England, where all these nurses, where they're talking about bringing in the National Guard to take over working at hospitals because there are so many people, are so many um, healthcare workers are walking off the job because they don't want to take it. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Well, somebody should ask them, have you guys already been infected or what's the problem? I mean, look. I see these people on CNN, you know, for what it's worth. And I don't watch much of it, but like there's that the one Chinese lady from the Boston hospital who's always on CNN and um, the totalitarian lady. Um, You know, she doesn't acknowledge that there's natural immunity at all. Like they don't ever stop and go, look, it's true. I guess what we could do is we could come up with like all the best sophisticated tests that we can, all the best antibody tests that we can. And for healthcare workers in New York, for example, okay, well, if you got the antibodies already, then you don't need a vaccine. Like that would be reasonable, but they don't even talk about that at all. It is, it's like the town of South Park, right? Where, you know, you ever shown the the TV show South Park to a little kid and you have to explain it like on this show, the adults are really stupid and the kids are the smart ones. I've never had to know that. The adults will believe anything like that's America. That's what South Park is, is it's America. People go off half cocked and they'll, you know, get caught up in any kind of crazy shit. It's ridiculous, man. Um, you know, um, Leanna Wen, that's her name. Yeah, she is the worst. She is totally uh, horrible. 
Um, and look, uh, and and yes, yeah, some people are getting messed up from the shots. I, I saw someone tweeted that that there is. I mean, you look at the VARES reporting; it's not all verified. Anybody can write on there, but still, there's you know, not anybody can write on there. That's not true. That's not true. It well, has to be somebody that the that the hospital has to give the okay um, for the person to put that, or the doctor's office has to has to be okay. They literally remove it if it is somebody who is not authorized, right, and they remove well, a lot of them. Okay, but it, okay, it's still not verified to be accurate. Okay, so you're saying it has to be not well, just I mean, some jackass, but somebody with a job. It, ha who, it has to be a doc. It, it has to be a doctor or a doctor or a doctor telling somebody to record this. And most doctors don't even know that that thing exists. It's still like, what's the total deaths on there from the from the shots? It's still 14, low. Thousand, 000, right? 14,000. 14, they say if and what they're not doing is they're not if somebody gets the shot and they die within 14 days of getting it, they don't record it as a as having anything to do with the shot. And if you were to take all of those into consideration, the amount goes to like forty five thousand. Yeah, maybe. Remember, I told you um, when I talked with my brilliant genius epidemiologist friend from the Fancy Pants Institutions back a year and a half ago that. Every coroner in every county in America has their own standard. There's no federal standard. There's no statewide standard. Or if there is, maybe one or two states have some statewide standard. But essentially, the coroner fills in the cause of death to mean whatever he wants. And essentially, what he was saying was, you can't rely on that either way, you know, at all. Like, all you can really rely on, you know, to really, to really see the effect of COVID is the excess, the excess death rate compared to the years before but if you want to just go by what the coroners say from covid or i guess from the shots or from anything else it's really just a shot in the dark a flip of a coin or whatever because you can't really count on that they can write down whatever they want and i know that that people say um uh well, that destroys that that destroys that, the whole seven hundred thousand number well maybe i mean um People say that they overcount, that they do everything they can to over, to count anything as a COVID death. And obviously there's examples um, where they're like abusing that, where the hospitals get more money if they say somebody died of COVID than if they died of something else or whatever it is, that kind of thing. Um, but, and I, and I should check with him on the, on the, uh, the excess death rate lately on all of that. I mean, I really have not been interested in this since couple of months after it started two or three months after it started i went back to writing my book about the middle east and let you guys fight about all this crap so i don't really read all the studies and all the news stories about it and stuff i'm really behind on it but um it's certainly you know more than half a million people have died of the thing including well, friends of mine well I, I think i think david makes a good point here he says excess death rate I mean, how many people died because they were unhospitalized because of heart attack? Oh, yeah, but you can correct for that, too. Cancer. Yeah, you can correct right? for that. But are, but are they correcting for it? I mean, oh, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, I mean, you know, CDC. My, my friend Reese Ehrlich died that way, you know, regular writer for antiwar.com. He had colon cancer, and they refused to treat him. What happened was he was changing insurance right at the time from Blue Cross to Kaiser Permanente. And then Kaiser wouldn't see him. And he was like, dude, I got colon cancer. And they go, don't worry. It's a really slow-developing cancer, usually. And he's like, yeah, but man, like I need to come in for some treatment. And they just put him off for like a year. And then by the time they saw him, 
it was like in January this year, they finally saw him and they were like, oh, I'm sorry, you're dying. You're toast. And he was dead by the end of February or something. So they refused to. And that was caused by the lockdowns and caused by the overreaction to the COVID, yeah. you know. Um, well, Kyle, Kyle's in the chat and he's saying that overdoses in 2020 were at least 99,000. Wow. And how's that compared to previous years? Do you know? Kyle? <laughs> I assume that's Kyle and not Will. <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, man. Uh, anyways, so wait, let's fight about sectarianism here a little bit before the show's all the way over. Um, sure. So you tweeted out this thing earlier today that was like a retarded libertarian party uh, meme, and he's got like a Reddit <laughs> poster on his wall. I thought that was funny. Dude, I look at Reddit because I have a private Reddit group, and I like watching some of the bum fights and crazy degenerate shit on so, it. But Kyle's saying it's up 23 or so percent ODs. Oh, man. Well, oh. um, but uh, so, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, man, yeah, people on Reddit are really stupid. Um there's some good libertarians on there too, but, um, but, no, you're, so, you're but my problem is, is this. My problem is this: is that um, as I think you know, and as uh, the audience all knows, right, is that the libertarian movement and the libertarian party have been very separate from each other for a long time, and but right now, there's this, as I know that you're well aware, there's this huge movement by, uh, you know, begun by Tom Woods and Dave Smith to join the Libertarian Party and Michael Heiss and the Mises Caucus movement. And I ended up joining to uh, to try to get Hornberger to do it, uh, to run. And um, and the whole goal is to try to merge the Libertarian movement with the Libertarian Party, at least enough so that the Libertarian Party reflects the Libertarian movement and that its priorities reflect our priorities. And it's saying the kind of stuff that we want it to say. Um, and so it seems like a, a pretty cheap shot to say, oh, yeah, no, the Libertarian Party is this, you know, completely weak, ridiculous leftist loser organization type thing when it's your own friends are the ones who are doing everything they can right now to try to make it not that way. And then that goes along with um, and I admit, I don't know what OP means. I think on Reddit means the original poster, but I yeah, don't yeah. know if that's how is that what you meant? Yeah. So, so your post was. Like if you should either be joining the Republican Party or you should be just working on making more money. And any other thing that any other libertarian is doing is a stupid fucking waste of time. And I'm going, listen, man, like that's just not true. In fact, that's why you do a show is not just for the money. You do a show because you want people to understand the things that you understand. You recognize it's, hyperbole, right? Not really. And not well. <laughs> Come on, Scott. I mean, you know me. Is, you know me by now. Come on. Yeah, no, I do know you. But the thing is, like on Twitter and the way all of this works out is, is it really doesn't come across like, ah, no, nah, I'm just ribbing you, man. It really comes across more like, look, like these are all um, definitive pronouncements of why this is the only right thing for a libertarian to do and that everybody else is a stupid idiot for daring to try to do anything different than that. And I'm just saying, like, the truth is as your actions demonstrate that you don't really believe that. Right. But this is like a big thing. You know, um, it's been a fight going on, you know, in some circles in libertarianism, at least on Twitter for a while now. I saw, um, I don't know if you saw it, where uh, Dave Smith debated Jason Stapleton about this. And Stapleton says, well, I think people should not be running for office. People should do shows. 
and other things. He lost, and I don't know if Dave noticed, but I thought Stapleton lost the argument right there. You think people should do shows? Well, what the hell do you think Dave running for president is? It's a show. What's the point of a show? What's the, why are we doing this stuff? It's so that new young people go, oh, I don't have to be a Republican or a Democrat or a liberal or a conservative or a socialist or a nationalist. There are people who got this already figured out. There are people who are right-wing liberals. There are people who are, that's to paraphrase Rothbard, there are people who understand the unified field theory of liberty. So to protect them, to, to inoculate them so that they don't have to become right-wingers or left-wingers in the first place. And so that when the subject comes up, whatever the subject is, that they'll know what the libertarian answer should be, which is always the superior answer. And that's why we're libertarians and not right-wingers or left-wingers is because we're the ones who already thought this stuff through and have the right answers. So, um, of course, it's important for us to do libertarian outreach of every kind. That's why we have a libertarian institute. That's why we all do these podcasts. That's why we write. And that's why we do, you know, uh, put antiwar.com up there. You know, look at antiwar.com. You could say that's just pissing in the wind. I'm not just defending myself here. That's a lot of other people's work there. And I still happen to agree with it. So I'm not just being defensive. But look at all of what antiwar.com has done. The truth is, as we were saying earlier about my hippie friend there, in America, foreign policy is made by the blob. Foreign policy is made by the wonks and the think tanks and the Israelis and the Pentagon, right? And and what do the American people have to do with it? Um, is, is it worthwhile for regular people to even have their say complaining about foreign policy all this time when we could have just been, what, stacking Satoshis this whole time? We could have been, um, you know, I don't know, voting Republican this whole time or something. But, you know, and, and honestly, like, what's our best claim? I think our best claim is that we may have helped slightly on the margin to prevent war with Syria in 2013. Maybe. And really, it's the House of Commons in Britain, and it's James Clapper, who wouldn't stand by the intelligence, who get the credit for stopping that war more than we did. But I think it was worthwhile, and I meet soldiers all the time who say they used to be a soldier, and now they're an anti-war guy because they heard my show. Um, and that kind of thing, or they read antiwar.com or, you know, read Ramondo, whatever it was. So, you know, all we're doing is making us a, a slight different on the margin and in ways mostly that aren't measurable. If, you know, if there's a way to measure them, they're, they're so small, they couldn't be measured even, um, but still seems worthwhile. And it means that at least after 20 years of this, even though we didn't, you know, stop the wars, that at least people know that the libertarians are, are the best on this and that there's a reason why we are. The leftists say, if you're a capitalist, you have to be an imperialist, but we prove that that's just not right, right? Um, and that if you and if you wanna reject conservatism and imperialism, you don't have to be a leftist. Like, say, say you hate conservatism and imperialism, but also you understand economics and you don't wanna be a leftist. Well, the libertarians are here for you, man. Um, and, and on and on and on like that. All the writings, all the media, all the everything we're doing. The Young Americans for Liberty, they work strictly with Ron Paul-leaning Republicans in the state houses to try to make Republicans less worse. You know, though Bishop has his thing, which I don't even think is really about influencing Republicans. It's just supporting them because the left is so much worse by his lights right now. Oh, he's, reading them, dude, he's reading them Rothbard. 
He's, yeah. he's okay. Well, he's, fine. Yeah, that's all fine too. But I'm just saying, the difference between uh, what all really all I'm saying is that I'm against sectarianism, right? Like, look at Max Blumenthal. Max Blumenthal is a leftist, and that means he's bad on like 16 things. Where you, if he had an air, you'd pull it all out and go, God dang it, Max Blumenthal, how could it be so bad on economic questions or whatever it is? But we love Max Blumenthal for good reason, because he tells the truth about important things. In fact, he was so good on Israel-Palestine, I looked the other way when he was bad on Syria for a couple of years until he got his act together and got good on Syria, which I knew he would eventually. And, and then he became one of the best on Syria for the rest of that war. And so we just sit here and be mad at him for not being a libertarian on everything. In fact, even spending time talking smack about libertarians in the past or put all that aside, put sectarianism aside and be pals and, and build coalitions and work together and be positive and, and help each other on the things that we can do together. And, you know, like I saw, for example, we got in a little fight about this on Twitter and someone responded, oh, yeah, look who voted good on Yemen. And it's a group of five or six of these new kind of Trumpist Republicans voted good on Yemen. And that's true. And I tweeted that, by the way, the day that they voted good. I said, here are the Republicans who voted right on it, you know, and that's great. But there's only six of them or I actually I think it was 11 of them. But who voted good on it was the Democrats. That's who voted good on it by, you know, 200 and something House Democrats voted for that. And 11 Republicans did, you know, so. Um, you know, the idea that that just because the left is so bad that the Republicans are all just great now, we need to go support whatever they're Nobody doing. Nobody said that. Nobody yeah. said that. That's a straw man. Come on. I don't think that's really a straw that's man. That's a straw man. Come on. Nobody is I mean, saying I mean, you will not get Tho Bishop to say that the, Repu the the Republicans are good on everything. You won't get him oh, to say that well, the Republicans are good. His... Did I? You I said we should support them. We should support that. We should presume that that their fight against the left is enough, you know, to be to be their guys, which I don't really think is right. But again, well, look, I do think it's right. In other words, if that's what Tho Bishop wants to do, I think that's fine. Yeah, I think it's what I think is wrong is for Tho Bishop to go around telling everybody else that they're wrong for not agreeing with him, that that's the one and only thing that we should be doing right now which is the thing that you said that pissed me off too. Everything else is a waste of fucking time, but that's not true. That's not true. You know, Keith Knight just put together a book, the volunteerist handbook, a collection of great writings of libertarian anarchists on all different questions. And we're about to publish it at the Institute and people are going to read that. And it's not going to be about voting Republican. It's not going to be, you know, the point of it is not against mask mandates, although for all I know, there's an essay like that in there. I don't know. But um, like that's I don't think that's just pissing in the wind. I think that's exactly what we need is is more and more things like that. You know, I think what he, he's kind of um, maybe he's mimicking malice a little bit. Malice did this book mm -hmm. of anarchist thought. And so Keith is more just libertarian anarchists rather than more, you know, I, I think Malice had like a broader range of people featured in his book. So right. anyway, it's the same reason you do a show, Pete, is so people pay attention to you and start hating the same things you hate. And and that that can't mean, oh yeah, no, join your local GOP or just forget it and and just go, you know, dig a ditch. I don't think that's really right. 
and and it seems to cause like all this dissension between people and resentments and shit talking between people when there's just no need for it. You know what I mean? I don't know why. Like, don't we want to have um, in in 2024? Don't we want to have libertarian pressure inside the Republican Party saying these candidates are too right wing on this, that or the other thing? You love cops too much. You love wars too much. You love Israel too much. Whatever it is, you guys need to be better for our support. And then at the same time, don't we want Dave Smith to run and dominate the conversation? Obviously, he can't dominate the Electoral College, but he can dominate the conversation between Kamala Harris. And, well, I don't know if he can dominate a conversation involving Dave Donald gonna Trump. Run? Is Dave, is Dave going to run now? I mean, oh, I think Vi- he is. With Victor, I mean. Nah, I think he is. And the thing is, um, well, I'm counting on it for now anyway. Um why don't you and, run? And if not, Dave, why don't you run? Dave, on, why don't you run on an anti-war, just an anti-war platform? Me? No, no, no. I ain't the guy. But, but the <laughs> thing is, if not, Dave, we get Tom or we get somebody else who is going to not let us down on the libertarian thing. And and on the libertarian thing, like the counterfactual is so obvious, right? Like I don't know, if, I don't know if you were paying any attention to all this stuff in '96 and 2000. But '96 and 2000, when Harry Brown ran, it was awesome. And Harry Brown was not perfect, but he was pretty damn good in a Ron Paul kind of a way. And I know people to this day who are libertarians because of him and little L libertarians. I mean, philosophical badasses, not just LP members. I mean, he in his own small way before the advent really of the Internet in in the way that we think of it now and certainly before social media and everything. He did pretty good, pretty damn good. And even when Ron Paul ran, remember, everybody was changing their MySpace picture to Ron Paul. That was when the Ron Paul revolution started in 08, was before modern Facebook and Twitter and, mm-hmm. and the way that all that is now as well. Um, but anyway, like if, if you just think of it without saying names, but our libertarian candidates in 04 and 08 and in uh, 12 and 16 and 20, they just they weren't good enough. I saw someone say today that like, hey, I'm sorry, Trump represents me uh, as a Ron Paul libertarian more than Joe Jorgensen does. Okay, fine. But Joe Jorgensen was never anyone's idea of a great libertarian candidate. Joe Jorgensen was there because it was either Jacob, I hate everyone and everything for no reason at all, Hornberger, or idiot with a boot on his head. And so instead, people said, well, we'll give it to the nice lady, at least, I guess. So we're not giving it to that crank who's mad for no reason that no one can understand. And the idiot with the boot on his head. So neither of whom were going to represent libertarianism worth a damn either. And I take responsibility for my role in encouraging Jacob to run. That was a big mistake. But and I'm sorry for throwing him under the bus. It's kind of rude. But it's part of the story here that. Nobody in the libertarian, even in the libertarian party, as milk toast as it is, nobody said, all right, great. We're going to run Jorgensen and she's going to be our torch bearing standard bearer of libertarian badassness. She was like, oh, thank God we have someone to give it to other than this jerk and this idiot. So like that guy is right. I'm sure Trump probably, you know, at least hated Hillary Clinton in an effective way. I don't think he's being. But I, I don't think he's I don't think he's being 100 percent serious. I think that when you make a statement like that, you're doing it to make a statement. You're making a statement on 
rather have rather have the reality TV show guy than Mima. You know the friggin' no, but I'm agreeing with that. Professor. But I'm just saying, yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know that that guy understood that Joe Jorgensen's was never anyone's idea of a great candidate. Right, right. You know, well, she I mean, was yeah. what we all were stuck with. The same as with you know. Now there were people who thought that um, that Gary Johnson would be great, but they the people who thought that were just going by his job description. Right. This is the Libertarian Party that we want to change. The Libertarian Party that thought, "Wow, a two-term governor," but didn't think, "Wow, this guy's kind of an idiot and doesn't really care." And so obviously is not going to, you know, carry the ball in the way that Ron Paul did in the way that we want to see. But then just look at the counterfactual. What if Harry Brown had just been younger and we ran Harry Brown in 2004 against W. Bush, you know, and, and four years of Linus in the war? And what if, you know, what if we had had, um, you know, younger Ron Paul or, you know, whatever? What if we'd had Dave Smith and Tom Woods? And they people like this had been our candidates all along, people who really got it and have represented the libertarian movement well all along. It was I'm I'm not saying it's a magic cure for anything, but I think we can all agree that would have been a lot better than having Bob Barr and and Gary Johnson and Joe Jorgensen, who didn't even know what the libertarian position was to articulate or fight for it at all. And frankly, I think that the liberals and the conservatives. And, uh, and, you know, I don't know. Trump is the wild card here. If Trump is going to run next time, that, you know, changes a lot of dynamics and what. But, you know, the average Republican and Kamala Harris or whatever, these people are so devoid of interesting things to say. I think, if, you know, this next presidential election season could be an excellent opportunity for people to learn about libertarianism from the first time. And from if somebody Trump like Dave Smith. Yeah, if huh? Trump doesn't run. If Trump well, runs, we'll if see. Trump runs, it's going to be Trump twenty four seven. I mean, of course, Dave could get on Rogan. Dave could get on Tim Pool. Dave can get on you know the big alt platforms and everything like that. But I mean, if Trump decides to run again, it's going to be a three ring circus, and I don't know yeah. if anybody's going to. I mean, I there'll be some people, but I don't think the press. I don't know that the press would give you know the quote unquote mainstream the corporate press would give Dave the yeah. time of day. Well, they might if they think they can use him against Trump. Yeah, that's yeah, that, that works. I mean, yeah. That was going to be my strategy for Hornberger if he got the nomination was you ought to go after hard after Trump until CNN takes the bait. Then once CNN gets you on there, then you go hard after the Democrats, too. Yeah, but the only way you can go hard after Trump is if you're going to go if you're going to be more like a better right winger than Trump. And well, that'd Jacob be a great way to Jacob do it. Would never, but Jacob would never do it. Well, Jacob that's the thing. The, the guy wouldn't hates, listen to reason at he all. He hates the right more than the left. And it. it yeah, and he, and he didn't see the value in, like, the backhanded compliment. You know, this is what I tried to – you know, I was an advisor to Gary Johnson. A friend came to me and said, would you please advise Gary Johnson? I got people asking, will you? And I'm like, I guess, you know, I guess later I'll regret not taking the opportunity if I had the opportunity to try, so I guess I'll try. And one of the things I was trying to get him to do – and they're sitting there praising Hillary Clinton. And I'm going, look, man, what you need to do is, like, on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, you attack Hillary and weld attack Trump. And then on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, you switch, right? And then, or on one week, you attack all Hillary all week, and he attacks Trump all week. And then the next week, you switch. But then you attack him for the exact same things. You make the, you know, coordinated in the morning. 
where you're accusing them of the same thing or you're giving them backhanded compliments. Oh my God, Trump is so horrible on this, but at least he's not as bad as Hillary on that. And then you do the same thing the other way, whatever. Like there's opportunity there. I'm not saying it changes everything, but there's opportunity to make real headway, to introduce people to this word libertarian, which look, man, I think, you know, if you know real people in the real world, people don't pay attention to politics unless it's a presidential election year. Right, so you don't yeah. kind of pay attention to politics at all. You get the only chance to tell people the word libertarian is a word and it means a thing and you ought to look into it that we ever get to have. So um, to say that it's just a, a big mistake to do what Heiss is doing. Remember why Heiss invented the Mises caucus, right? Heiss invented the Mises caucus because the Libertarian Party was led by people, a person at the time, who was attacking and smearing Ron Paul and Tom Woods. And Michael Heiss said, wait a minute, how can this be? The National Libertarian Party is smearing and not like some fair criticism. Hey, sometimes Ron Paul votes right wing on some things or whatever it is. I don't know. Nope. Totally smearing and attacking our hero for no good reason at all. And Heiss said, this is intolerable, right? So like Heiss wasn't saying... I'm going to make the Libertarian Party into the greatest organization that ever existed under the sun. He said, I'm going to make sure that the Libertarian Party represents American Libertarians. And it doesn't represent the kind of people who are going to sit there and trash Ron Paul in Libertarianism's name. We're going to, at the very least, we're going to keep the worst guys out and make it look good. And I don't know how anybody could oppose that. And I don't know how anybody thinks that that is contrary to supporting Republicans if you want to doing the Thoe Bishop route or the Young Americans for Liberty route, or for that matter, for people to infiltrate the Democrats, right? Like there are left-leaning libertarians who ought to be some kind of pressure on the left to, you know, find a way to make their voice heard that, you know what, you Democrats don't have to always be the worst on everything. What about this? What about that? Remember when you used to be good on this? When you used to be good on that? Like that's what I want. Here's, I want. Here. I want, as they say, full spectrum dominance. Right, flood the zone with libertarian propaganda, all over the left, right, and the center, and everywhere else. You know, on Reddit, there's a group called neoliberal, where they are like Hillary Clinton Democrats making excuses for like the status quo in every way. But I can see the opportunity there for a libertarian to make some good points to these people. Because what are neoliberals anyway, right? They're the thesis, antithesis, synthesis from the New Dealers and the Libertarians. And then what do you get? You get neoliberals. And then and they're bad on a lot of stuff, but they're not communists, right? They believe in, in property rights to a degree. You know, they don't want to completely abolish the Second Amendment like some. Um, you know, they, they agree with free trade only it's the kind of free trade that we reject as managed trade you know nafta and gat and world trade organization stuff but what do they want they want regulation in favor of freer and freer trade in the world right like it would be better if there were more libertarian leaning neoliberals within the neoliberals right just the same as it would be better if there's more libertarian rock stars and more libertarian everything else so that's what I, that's really the only thing I'm fighting with you about. Like, I don't, I don't disagree with you at all about joining your local Republican party, giving them your money, 
supporting their candidates and demanding things from them. And, and I don't disagree with you that like every libertarian, if this is their thing, ought to figure out how to go into business for themselves and, and be free in that way. And, 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 uh, uh, to the best degree they can or any of those things. I just don't, I just disagree with you that any of these concepts are exclusive of each other. You know, that's the only thing of it, you know? Yeah. I'm just saying what I think is really like the most powerful rap. Um, I don't see. I've come to the conclusion that the, empowering yourself with you know some level of wealth and not even and wealth doesn't have to be you know millions of dollars in the bank wealth could be one acre where you're growing your own food kind of thing i mean that's wealthier than anyone living in a city you know because if food shortages happen cities are the ones that the first ones that are fucked and everything but um i i also have come to the conclusion that one of the greatest ways that we can fight back on this is local political power and i just don't if if the libertarian party wants to be a force for education which is kind of weird for a political party fine and everything but i'm i guess there are some locations that can have more libertarians and not who can do things politically under the libertarian label i just don't I'm having trouble seeing what kind of power the Libertarian Party can wield when it comes to politics. I guess that's where my that's my biggest problem. Sure, I mean, and I've told you, and we've talked about this privately. My biggest issue with Dave running is it's going to be Ron Paul again. All these people are going to come in, they're going to get excited, and then Dave doesn't win because Dave wouldn't win, or whoever runs, and. Then they scatter and go and, you know, a few, the remnant is left over and everything. And it just seems like if we're just dealing with the remnant over and over again, I mean, us remnant, we're doing our best, but, you know, we're, you know, a lot of people have been locked down for the last 18 months, you know? Well, look, I mean, but look at how far behind we're starting. I mean, look, at the turn of the century, Pete, there was no libertarians on TV ever. Libertarians weren't part of the debate at all. Um, even like the way they call the Quincy Institute now in foreign policy, the restrainers, they had no seat at the table whatsoever. The only libertarian who, you know, got to be on TV and say anything was Ron Paul. Um, and he was a Republican. And then he kicked the door open for all of us. I mean, the Ron Paul revolution changed everything. It was not long at all before Kennedy and Matt Welch had a show on Fox Business. Judge Napolitano had a show on Fox Business and, you know, an explicitly libertarian show. Um, that all only started 10 years ago, uh, you know, with the advent of the Ron Paul revolution, people never heard the word libertarian. They didn't think of us as like a third way explanation for anything at all. Uh, if anything, and you still hear this somewhat, ha huh, huh, Republicans that smoke pot because people don't know anything about it. Um, it, you know, um, and so you know, I think we're making major progress. What Ron Paul did with those revolutions, he got millions of people. First of all, and remember this, Ron ran not as a paleo right winger. Ron ran as a libertarian. Ron ran an explicitly like centrist libertarian campaign. In 2007? 
in 2008 and, and, and in 12. Yes. The only I still have the pamphlets about closing the borders and everything. Yeah. Like but, that. Yeah. But that's, that's exactly like my point. Like that's the exception that proves the rules is his, um, campaign advertising staff. They never got it. I mean, they ran him, they did TV commercials like Ron Paul, the only veteran in the race, he'll keep America safe and all this. And then John McCain got the anti-war vote in New Hampshire because Ron Paul's TV people ran him as a hawk. Essentially, you you would have thought he was the hawk in the race when the whole point, idiots, was he's the anti-war Republican. The only vet in the race is anti-war and he's a right winger. And how do you like that? Whatever. The interesting part, the ironic part. Right. So, no, his his campaign staff were idiots, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about every single time he was on TV, every time he was interviewed by Wolf Blitzer, every time he was in a debate, every time he gave a speech, he ran as the plumb line libertarian, not as a right wing paleo guy. And Ron Paul's audience always was kind of half libertarians and half sort of like Bircher, right wing populist patriot types. And he pulled them quote unquote, I guess, at least to the left, to the libertarian anyway, um, you know, because he wasn't running really as as a right wing populist. He was running as a libertarian. And then he brought in millions of us. And then so that's all the people that we're talking about now, like our entire movement, such as it is on the Internet and and, you know, whatever different organizations, all, almost all of this comes out of the Ron Paul movement, including Dave Smith. And um, I forgot if it was you or how many different oh, yeah. were you one of them that said it was the Ron Paul Giuliani moment that got uh -huh. your attention. Right. Uh -huh. So so, you know, that's where a, a, a whole part of our movement came out of. And then just like Ron Paul always said, people would ask him, well, what do you think I should do? And he would say, do whatever you want. That's the whole point. Figure it out. Get creative and and do your own thing. And so um, now this is, you know, a big part of the reason that we're having this argument at all is because Rand Paul dropped the ball. Right. Rand Paul didn't want to be the champion of his father's movement and the libertarian movement in America. He's more conservative than that. He always was anyway. And then he explicitly made the choice that, like, I am not here as my father's son. I'm my own guy. In fact, I'm Mitch McConnell's son. And he ran like that for, you know, he stayed like that. He's been getting, he's been getting somewhat better lately. But that was what happened was Ron passed him the baton and he threw it on the ground. And so then we didn't have anybody of, like, national stature, really, to, to really push this thing forward. And that's why people put so much hope in the Libertarian Party candidates is because they know they'll get some, at least some national attention, want them to say some cool stuff. And then they don't and people get mad. But so anyway, I'm predicting the best for the, the Dave Smith revolution. I think it's going to be awesome. And I think, you know, when you talk about, yeah, he's going to get on alternative media. I think he's going to do a killer job on alternative media. And truth is, as far as the mainstream goes, like it's no guarantee, but he's got ins at CNN and at Fox. You know, he does not just Fox business, but he does the Gutfeld show on real Fox. And um, for a couple of years, I think he had a regular spot on the SE Cup show at CNN, right. which means he knows some producers there and whatever. Dave, you know, he's already a successful New York comedian with his own, you know, essentially mainstream reputation. It's not like he's Dave Chappelle or anything, but um but he, he already has a reputation as a professional comedian anyway. So I think he will get some access. And I think that what he's going to have to say is going to be so much better and more important than anything that 
Trump or DeSantis or Kamala Harris or whoever had to say that I think he's going to play a major role in the political conversation in the year 2024. And it's going to be worth it. We're going to get a ton of bang for, for our buck out of it. I can you know? only hope, man. I can yeah. only hope. And look, I don't, I just don't think, I just still don't see um, why there's a contradiction between supporting that versus supporting the GOP. There's enough of us to go around, you know, like it's true. I guess one person can't be all things, but some of us can do this and some of us can do that in a way that, um, you know, look, look how bankrupt the right wing and the left wing are in their beliefs, right? Um, that's not the that's not the the average so person. The that's not, even, that's there, not, you know. That's not a lot. I mean, I know you have a neighbor that wants to kill people for for doing cocaine and everything, but that's not the average neighbor. The average neighbor who's a, even the leftist neighbors, they're people that you can talk to and they're people you can yeah. you know have a conversation with and everything. Uh, you know, we're talking about the um you know, we're talking about the elites. We're talking about the people who are in the 202 area code. I'm not, I, I don't care about that anymore. And, you know, even Michael Bolden, who was here earlier, he'll tell you he doesn't care about the 202 area code anymore. Um, yeah, I just want to concentrate on where I'm at. And, um, you know, the, what whatever is the strongest can do that. I mean, I know that Michael has like great influence in his hometown, and that's, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I think that that's something that we all should. And if if that is the goal of the Mises Caucus, and that is what Michael told me, you know, on a phone call you know, month month and a half ago, then that's something I think we should lead with, so that we don't have that dispersing of people who get all excited about a Dave run, people who know, you know, what the plan is coming in. The plan is that hey, we're going to take over look, we're going to take over localities, we're going to look to privatize stuff, you know, and. You know, the, the whole Hans Hermann Hoppe, what must be done kind of thing. Um, and, yeah, I, I just think that's something to lead with. You know, I, yeah, think that, no, I, I think that's really I, something to lead with. I, I mean, I think it is. Every time I talk to Heist, I mean, this has always been like it's a two track game. One, we want to run our best guy for president for the publicity stunt so that so that we have someone that we want to be the guy, somebody who deserves to be the guy carrying the standard so that for the new people that they understand what it is correctly in the first place, you know, and then, you know, the rest of it always was trying to take over Congress, um, you know, County courts and trying to take over city councils and, you know, school boards, school boards, all of those things. I and mean, the thing is though, look, I mean, we're a distinct minority here. America is divided in these two massive left and right coalitions. And, um, and the, you know, the libertarians at this point, we don't have the numbers to be the dominant force in any of those factions. Even if we were all doing the same thing together, we all decided to join the Republican Party on a Republican strategy, paleo strategy or whatever, and do it like that. We don't have enough to dominate yet. We need to grow. We need more people to get it, more people to read Rothbard and understand economics and and have something other than like a post-Vietnam hippie anti-war uh, anti-war point of view, but something like a 21st century, you know, educated anti-terror point of view, an anti-Cold War with Russia and China and all of that. I mean, th there's tons of work to be done. Um, and like, I don't know, like, in a way, 
depending where you're at, you might have Republicans in your area who are real good listeners. But, you know, like around here, the Republican Party are just a bunch of, you know, thin blue line flag waving, you know, morons. <laughs> they're, they're pretty much bad on stuff. They're good on lockdowns. Again, they wouldn't be if Trump was in power. But as long as it's Joe Biden wanting to lock them down or, or wanting to stick a, a vaccine in their arm or whatever, they'll be good on that. Um, and by by all means, we should we should be trying to influence them. But I, I wouldn't put too much stock in in them to be very malleable. You know what I mean? Again, like uh, I'm sorry, I think somebody on Twitter said the left you know, isn't malleable either. Hey, well, yeah, but so somebody quoted Ron saying this is why Ron Paul always talks about coalitions rather than alliances. You know what I mean? They're like, don't don't ever fool yourself into into thinking that these people are different than than what they are. If we can ally with them on something that they're good on and, and try to influence them to be better then fine, but just don't believe in it. I mean, I saw this firsthand, Pete, you know, in the 1990s badly when there was such an anti-government movement after Waco and even after Oklahoma City, I mean, the militia movement fell apart, but the uh, there was still a strong patriot movement, a strong anti-government movement. But then came Lewinsky. And by 1998, that was in 19, beginning in 98, and then through all 98, 99, and 2000, it turned out that the butchers of Waco aren't the problem. The federal agencies and departments, they're not the problem. The problem is Bill Clinton and his licentiousness. You know, fat boy got a powerful job, so now he can scam on women and embarrass America. Oh, what a tragedy. And so then all they needed was for Clinton to be gone and for W. Bush to come in. And then they loved him. They loved him. They weren't anti-government at all. They had never loved government so much. And, you know... Same kind of thing, of course, everybody makes fun of the liberals and the leftists for when this happened to them when Obama came in, you know, and frankly, like, I'm glad that the right wing are better on war now, but really, and I know that Donald Trump never really believed in the wars, but the real reason he went after the wars is because he had to defeat Jeb and Jeb was the brother of W. So at the time when Donald Trump said, yeah, we're against all these Middle East wars, aren't we, everybody, in 2016? When he said that, all the right-wingers was like, huh, we are? Yeah, I mean, yeah, whatever Donald Trump says. But they were hawks up until two days before that. You know, same people say we should turn Mecca to glass. You know, um, and if Trump had bombed, uh, and tr when Trump did bomb Syria, they didn't really say anything. And if he had gotten us into a war with Iran, they would have supported it. When he bombed Syria, I mean, even what's her name? The skeleton, the skeleton and Coulter. She was cursing him on TV. Well, yeah, that was a special one. She was reading Ramondo. Hmm. Writing, you know, pissing in the wind over there at antiwar.com. Um, but I mean, that did not represent the Republican right. I mean, if anything, what Tucker, what did represent the Republican Tucker right at that happy. time, it was it was Breitbart. It was Breitbart that did it, and I and I give credit to Bannon for this. But the narrative was, um, oh no, this was earlier. This was no, no, no. This is this was during um, Obama when the narrative was, we don't care about the Syrians enough to bomb them. Screw them. Uh, and I think some of that carried over to when Trump bombed them. But luckily, you see, when Trump bombed Syria, we're talking about when he bombed the Syrian government. Of course, 
he waged a total war against the Islamic State in the east of that country for a year. But we're talking about when he bombed the Syrian state. He only bombed them for one day, two different times a year apart. So there wasn't that much to oppose, right? It was some kind of symbolic strikes and then call the thing off, whatever. But, you know, anyway, well, even the bombing, even the American the bombing right, after... they can become war hawks real goddamn quick if they yeah. need to, you know, yeah. depending on who's sitting in the chair. But even the bombing that they did of the, um, the base after the whole Soleimani thing. Remember yeah. when Iran sent the sent the bombs in and everything? Mm-hmm. I mean, that almost seemed planned. That almost seemed like we need to save face. We're going to send some bombs here. Get your people out of there. And then they right. sent bombs, and you know, people were screaming at you know Trump has to retaliate when this happens and everything, and he didn't. So I mean, he was listening. Somebody. It was Tucker that stopped him. It was Tucker yeah. and Douglas McGregor. You know, Douglas McGregor went on the Tucker Carlson show and Tucker Carlson's like, let me get this right. The Ayatollah and Iran, they're the Shiites and they fight against Al Qaeda and the terrorists. Is that right, McGregor? And McGregor's like, damn right, Tucker. Let me tell you something. Vietnam destroyed Lyndon Johnson's presidency and Iraq destroyed W. Bush's presidency. And I know that Donald Trump is not going to make the mistake and destroy his presidency in Iran. That's what stopped that war was those two men. And but then the American right, they'd have gone along with it. They would have gone along with it. If if we didn't need to attack them, why are we attacking them then? Yeah, I've seen this before, man. It happens over and over. And look, don't get me wrong, because again, it's the Horton rule. Bolden named it that. I didn't name it that. It, you attack the right from the right. Persuade the right from the right. I'm not saying that the right wing is beyond reproach and just screw them. I'm just and you know, I'm all for trying to persuade them to be as less worse as possible, but I don't see them as really you know favoring liberty as much as just opposing the left and that means when the left is good on something like legalizing gay marriage or legalizing pot the right are against that the right in fact you know D- dave smith likes to yeah for about out, 10 for about five or ten years and then the right comes around what to it well no only just after they lose right i mean what happened was the supreme court ended up legalizing gay marriage and the right wing went oh well i don't know but remember as Dave Smith points out, like, why isn't the right wing the dominant culture? They complain that the left rules everything now. Well, why is that? The last thing that the right was the dominant culture on was we have to attack Iraq. We have to start a war against this helpless country that could have never attacked us in 500 years. And we have to torture people, including to death. And what was the last big, in fact, I was mad at all the gay rights people at the time in 2004. Because all the gay rights people in 2004, when the issue should have been the war, they made it all about gay marriage. And that was the last big final stand of the right wing, wasn't it? They all came out to support W. Bush to reelect the guy who lied them into war because he promised to keep gay guys from getting married to each other. Which had, of course, nothing to do with any of the people who were voting against it whatsoever. That's where they blew their wad. That's where they blew all their legitimacy. They weren't fighting for freedom. They were fighting for war and torture and preventing people from establishing whatever interpersonal relationships they fucking feel like. And, and you know, Christy Nome, who's the best Republican governor on the lockdowns, in South Dakota, they passed a referendum to amend the Constitution to legalize pot. And she's suing and obstructing and doing everything she can to prevent that. Right. Because she doesn't believe in liberty. 
South Dakota is just a friendly place for business. And business is not necessarily free market capitalism. It just means people who happen to be rich and successful right now and in with the conservative Republican government. So, you know, they won't force you to become trans, but that doesn't make them libertarian. They're right wingers. You know, all I know, all I know is all the people, all the people I see talking who want to stick a needle in my armor on the left. That's what I know. Okay. But they're right. They're not going to though. Like nobody's mandating sticking a needle in your arm in the state of Ohio or if we'll you stayed in Georgia. Well, I mean, we, we, we sh I don't think it's going to happen because I don't think it can happen here, but Australia is a fuck, fucking scary place right now. And like they're, they're, they just instituted $5,000 fines for people who don't get jabbed by like November 24th or something like that. Like, do you lose your job and you have to pay a $5,000 fine or something like that? And I don't no, know that's thing about that. The $5,000 fine is if, is if you claim you on a thing that you haven't been anywhere where people have COVID falsely or whatever. So uh, that's whatever. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's still, it's just, it's, ugh. I told I, you I before, Pete, you've been up in an airplane. America's too big. There's too many people. There's just too many people. This thing was already a massive empire before they ever went to the Philippines. You know, um, there's just too many people in this country and, and, and Americans are just too damn ornery, whether they like freedom or not, whether they'll respect anybody else's rights or not. It's hard to tell them what to do, you know? Um, hey, and, it's, you know, it's certainly in most places, they're not going to try it. In most places, they're not even going to try it. It's all this lockdown stuff. As Dave already said, like even when the Delta variant was going mad, nobody's pr proposing a lockdown the way they did a year ago. So they're essentially conceding that they shouldn't have done that a year ago. It was crazy when they did it then and they wouldn't even try it now. You know? Hey, we've been going. We're almost, we're going to be at two hours pretty soon. We got to get out oh, no. of here. What time is it? Where's the counter? Oh, like I not, see. Yeah. That's too many. All right. So anyway, my only lesson is everybody should adopt the ethics of antiwar.com, which is yeah. don't be a sectarian. If you're good on anything, you're good enough. Well, you can you, know? you can you can definitely get with people on single issues. That's yeah. for sure. But it's, and and look, and you don't have to condemn everybody who's doing things different than you. You know? Um I again, look at the counterfactual. If we had had Dave Smiths to run as a libertarian candidate this whole time, it would have been awesome, right? Um, someone else might have a different idea that they think would be a better use of their time. But, uh, but um, you know, whether it's doing shows or running websites or writing books or running for, you know, campaigns for office or whatever it is. I mean, if, if, if people are you know, in that Ron Paul spirit, doing what they want, what they think is a good way that they can help advance liberty. Look at Eric July was like, dude, I'm going to sing songs about this shit. You know? And that ain't me. Um, I can't play a tune. I can't play a single instrument. I can hate music, but I can't make any. Um, but, and, and you like, you know, I always think about this, about the communists, right? They're like, if it was up to the communists, no one would have any fun at all. Because how can you justify diverting resources to a water park? 
when there are these other priorities, right? But then that's the brilliant thing about having the market is you don't get to decide, commie rat. We want to put our money in a water park so people can have fun. And that's what we're going to do with it. And it's all decentralized decision making. There are things where you and I would look at it and say, that's a waste of resources. But to the people who are the ones in charge of using those resources, they think it's worth it. And they're getting the bang for their buck that they want out of it. And then when they don't like what we're doing, they're wrong about us too, about that, you know, about that we shouldn't, you know? So that's all I'm saying is like more positivity and less condemning each other for our different things. In fact, so Stapleton last night, you know, uh, condescendingly told me that I don't know what the hell I'm doing and I should be smart like him. I think what Jason Stapleton's doing is great. You know, he used to do a show that was more about libertarian propaganda. Now it's about how to make money. Fine. You don't see me going around going, oh, Jason Stapleton, you should do what I say instead of doing what you want to do. Because then I would sound like a stupid condescending prick, right? Yeah. So. Let's get out of here, brother. All right. Good night, guys. Good night. Uh, have fun in Florida, Pete. And I'll see you in two weeks. Yep. Take care.